Adventism began as a movement that came from study of the scriptures. And it became a, 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 a movement of people known as people of the book. And I think that we want to sort of recapture this morning a little bit of the certainty which the Millerites had and early Adventists had in their message. Now, will it be a problem if I'm not standing behind this, the microphone? Is that okay? Can you still hear me all right? Okay. Um, Adventism is a, is a Bible-based movement, a Bible-based message. And, uh, you know, as we think about, especially 1844, and as we think about the message that is somewhat unique to Adventists, uh, today we have questions that are raised. We have challenges to it. And uh, not only the message of the timing of 1844, but what happened in 1844 and why that's relevant today. So in my two seminars today, we're going to be looking at the certainty of 1844. First of all, just trying to capture in a brief period of time as... Uh, as well as we can, trying to capture why the Millerites were so certain about their time in 1844 and uh, what that certainty means for us today. In the second seminar, we're going to be looking at how, what happened in 1844 and what is continuing to happen in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is relevant to our daily lives today. And so we're going to get started and just do a little bit of a review. I know some of you, maybe all of you, are familiar with the basics of Bible prophecy, but sometimes we have to go back to the basics to really affirm the principles that give us the certainty when we get into some of the, the, the more um, involved portions. Um, I'd like to just start by pointing out the fact Millerites were careful Bible students. The Millerites were ones who were individuals who who very intently, very intensely studied the Bible. And if you look at what they were, what the impact of their decisions would be, you can understand why they were so careful. These were people who were making decisions that were very radical decisions. Um, by the time they expected Jesus to come in 1844, many of them had sold their farms and were living with family or friends. They had left their fields unharvested. They had given all of their savings or retirement to uh, the work of printing literature and spreading the message to the world. So they had a vested interest in being careful Bible students. This wasn't something that they could just flippantly engage in because this was something that very uh, clearly impacted their lives. Lives. It's also interesting for us to note that uh, not a single error in their calculations was discovered by their opponents. Each time they revised their understandings of the prophecies or the scriptures, whether it was, you know, from the between the spring of 1843 to the spring of 1844, they first thought that the second coming would happen, um, uh, to the fall of 1844, to further refining it to the, uh, the 22nd of October 1844. Each time they adjusted or changed their, their understandings, those adjustments or changes were not due to their critics pointing out the faults in their study, but actually themselves studying the matters more closely and coming to a cl closer understanding, a clearer understanding. And so this is something that's very interesting. As we look at, 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 their, um, at the history, as we look at their writings, we find that each time they introduced new ideas, it wasn't because they had been f caught red-handed, you might say, with a... With a, a, a an error in their accounting. 
But let's just go back. Let's go back to the, the very beginning of Bible prophecy, end-time Bible prophecy, symbolic Bible prophecy, and that's Daniel 2. And we're going to look at a number of things here, beginning with Daniel 2, and we're going to try to just go through an overview of Daniel chapter 2. I know you're familiar with it, no doubt, but um, I think it will help you as we look at some of the principles of biblical interpretation that the Millerites and William Miller and his followers were using. Uh, we remember that Daniel 2 is the first, or Daniel is the first book dedicated to end-time prophecy, and I would suggest that it gives us a rubric or the principles of interpretation for understanding the rest. You know, some people like to jump right into, into the book of Revelation, and you, if you turn on your television today and l scan some of the religious channels, you'll see that there are many different ideas about the book of Revelation and some of those prophecies. And uh, the problem is that jumping right into the book of Revelation, or even if we were to use this morning as an example, jumping right into Daniel 8 and 9 would sort of be like skipping your first few grades of, of uh, elementary school math. Um, if you were to try to go right into algebra or right into calculus without having taken any of the prerequisite courses, how, um, how much sense do you think those algebraic uh, problems or the calculus problems would, would, would make to you? Not much at all. And so Daniel 2 is, in a way, you could call it the, the ABCs of biblical interpretation. It's like the, uh, the, the first grade, and it tells us how we can understand prophecy. And what you see is as we go through the book of Daniel, we're going to see that there's a progression in complexity in the prophecies. Um, there's also a progression in the amount of, or I should, maybe I should say a, 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 a regression in the amount of explanation given at times, um, and to the point when you come to the book of Revelation, there's no more, no longer a, an interpretation given. You just have the prophecies, and you're expected to learn the principles that were demonstrated in the book of Daniel in order to interpret it. So, so here in the book of Daniel, we, we are blessed with this, with this one fact, and that is that in each chapter, the interpretive principles are right there with the prophecy so that we can, we can, we don't have to do a lot of interpreting. Um, it's interpreted for us, but what we can do is we can learn the principles of interpretation by comparing the prophecy and the way the prophecy is given with the interpretation and the way the interpretation is given. So we remember that this was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar as well as to Daniel. Um, we can consider it the, uh, the uh, ABCs of interpretation. And once again here, we remember that Daniel is given the dream and the interpretation and uh, given that to be able to explain it to Nebuchadnezzar and to be able to share with him the, uh, the meaning of the dream. In later prophecies, it is assumed that we remember the principles and symbols taught. And uh, that's just the way Bible prophecy works. Now, I want to real briefly look at the three major schools of thought on prophetic interpretation, just so you have a little bit of a context of where, where we are coming from as Adventists and as historicists. As Adventists and as historicists, we look at uh, um, prophecy through the lens of, of what we call historicism. These are the, prof the prophetic principles of interpretation which we use. And I'm just going to highlight or contrast two or three of the qualities of these schools of thought, and uh, so you can see how they differ, especially as it relates to the way um, we interpret the book of Daniel. So in historicism, the understanding of prophecy, the lens through which we look at prophecy, is that prophecy covers the entire period, approximately from the time of the prophet, 
down to the time of the end. Okay, that's a concept of historicism. And <clears throat> what this means is the prophet is writing and instead of God simply giving him a vision or her a vision that, that begins at some unspecified date in the future, the vision that the prophet gets or receives or sees, the vision begins with approximately their time period, a, a time that they can easily sort of uh, relate with and, and, and begin to describe. And uh, so when we look at Daniel chapter 2, for example, um, what, what do we have? We have the head of gold representing who? Babylon. And, and is that during uh, Daniel's time period? Yes. yes, it is. You are this head of gold. He's speaking first person, present tense to, uh, I'm sorry, second person, present tense to the, uh, to the king of Babylon who was living and contemporaneously uh, alive with Daniel. So this is a, the, the, the vision or, is, or the dream in this case was beginning with the uh, present time. And when would it, end. How, how far down would it extend? The second, the second coming. That means that no matter when we are living, obviously after the time of Daniel and before the second coming, whenever, no matter when we're living, we can find ourselves in that stream of time. How do we find ourselves in that prophecy? We simply look through the interpretations and we begin to figure out what's already been fulfilled. And this is why, maybe one reason why it's called historicism is because it requires the study of history in order to understand where we are in the prophecy today. Does that make sense? It does not mean, historicism does not mean that all prophecy has already been fulfilled in the past. That is a misunderstanding even in, among Adventists that I sometimes hear today. And they say, well, you know, we believe there's still important prophecies for the future. Of course. Historicism simply means that we have to study history to find where we are in this continuum of time that will... Um, extend all the way down to the second coming. Um, another principle of historicism is the day-year principle, or I, I think as our pioneers usually called it the year-day principle. Um, this is a principle that simply says that in symbolic Bible prophecies, a day is equal to a literal year. Um, this is a principle, we'll talk more about this in a little while. Um, it's a principle that... Um, is, is very important for our understanding, and um, we could spend a whole hour simply looking at the evidence from Scripture for the year-day principle. Now, many Adventists today simply know, you know, one or two verses, but there's, there's, actually, there's actually several um, in-depth studies that have been done by Adventist scholars that would, that would show from dozens of different instances, the, the day-year principle. And it's a very important principle in the study of prophecy from historicism's perspective. Um, the, another principle of historicism, another major tenet of historicism, is the Antichrist had its beginnings in Paul's day. We read in, in 2 Thessalonians, the man of sin is, or the spirit of iniquity is already at work, right? Remember he's saying that? And um, it's going to be destroyed the second coming, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, and 8. And uh, this is something that the historicists, the early historicists, uh, well, I guess the earliest historicists would be the early Christians or anyone who read, read the book of Daniel. But um, in modern times, it's really the reformers who began to interpret Bible prophecy with the concept through the lens of historicism. And this was obviously one of the clear 
comp, uh, conclusions they came to. From their understanding of historicist prophecy, they concluded that the Antichrist was present in their day and it was identifiable in their day. And if it was, then they ought to find out what it was. And of course, you know, they concluded what they believed it was. So if we were to graphically illustrate historicism, it would be something like this. The prophecy is given as an as a unbroken timeline from the, approximately the time of the prophet down until the time of the end, second coming, or even after the second coming when we talk about the book of Revelation. Um, and the, the, uh, the, the day in which we're living is sometime in that stream of time. We can find ourselves there by simply comparing history with the prophecy and deciding where in that stream of time we are. We would also note that the Antichrist um, is described as, as, as arising in the future and being destroyed at the second coming. So this is sort of the, a, pic, uh, a graphic illustration of the concept of prophecy as viewed through the lens of historicism. When we look at the second major interpretive um, school of thought for prophecy, we would uh, talk about futurism. And the idea of futurism is that prophecy does not cover the entire period until the second coming. There's actually a gap. There's a, there's a period which the prophecy is sort of silent and uh, we're just waiting for the next event to restart the prophetic timeline, if you please. Um, most prophecy is still to be uh, fulfilled in the future, just before the second advent. And their understanding of the prophecy, of course, is, is that the, uh, well, there's almost as many different views of prophecy as there, are, as there are futurists. But most, I think, would say that the, the, the end of the gap, or the restarting of all these prophecies, is the is the, either the, the, the rapture or the coming of the Antichrist, something along those lines. You're familiar with some of the, the uh, rapture views and some of the futurist views of prophecy. And so um, this, is, this is their model. They do not see a continuous timeline in which we can find ourselves. In fact, most futurists, when they read the prophecies, they're going to discount any type of a historic fulfillment of the prophecies and they're going to put it all in the future. And uh, one of the reasons that, um, well, one of the implications of this is that it does away with the day-year principle. Now you ask, why does it have to? Well, I don't suppose it has to, but it becomes painfully difficult for, for example, the three and a half years of perse persecution to be actually 1260 years of persecution. Um, it becomes difficult because you have their understanding of the Antichrist ruling for three and a half years, um, what we would say 1260 days or years. Um, their understanding of that is that he's an individual, not a system. So there's, it's, um, you know, you, you have uh, obviously a difficulty with an individual being around for that period of time. Furthermore, um, no one wants to really think that they're going to have to go, there's going to be, or the world is going to last another 1260 years. So futurism has, has for pragmatic reasons, largely, done away with the day-year principle. And um, we'll talk about that a little more in the future. Now, I will mention, before we move on, I will mention that almost all futurists still accept the day-year principle where they have to. Uh, very, few, very few Christian interpreters of any stripe or color are going to have a, a concept of, let's say, the 70 weeks or the first 69 weeks that does not include the day-year principle. The reason being that you have, well, if you don't have the day-year principle, you have to look for your Messiah sometime around 455 B.C. and 
you can't be a Christian in that, in that context. So, so they, they will accept that when they have to, and, um, but they fail to, to use that as a principle applying further on. They also say the Antichrist is in the future, of course, just before the second coming, as I mentioned a little while ago. Again, if we were to make a graphic illustration of this, we would, we would see that the prophet had the prophecy. Maybe some things in the prophecy dealt with their current time, their contemporaneous um, world, but there's a gap in which the, there's no prophetic fulfillment, no prophetic application, and we're living in that gap. And um, we don't have to find ourselves in the stream of time because there is no stream of prophecy that we could find ourselves in. It's going to be restarted, reinvigorated after that gap at the, um, well, as I mentioned, at the, either the Antichrist or the Rapture or something like that that they have decided. And um, then, of course, it has many implications between that point and the end of time or the second coming. We're living in this, in this no man's land. The Antichrist is still in the future. So this is sort of a, a, an overview of futurism. Preterism, on the other hand, is the idea that prophecy was fulfilled soon after the prophet gave the, the prophecy or shortly after the first advent. And the longest fulfillment of prophecy they're going to see is sometime maybe around the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the general concept of preterism. The Antichrist is already passed. Antiochus Epiphanes is probably the most popular preterist um, Antichrist or, you know, opposer of God's people. Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, was the one who, um, who uh, sacrificed pigs on the altar in Jerusalem and in, uh, f insulted the, the Jewish nation and religion in such a, an awful and dramatic way. Um, if we were to illustrate this, we would, we would see this simply as the prophet's time down to the time of, this, of Jesus or maybe to the destruction of Jerusalem. We are, of course, living after this time. Prophecy is no great interest to us and has no great application to our lives. Um, and so this is sort of the, the, uh, the, the graphic understanding of preterism. Now, I'll, I'll mention there's one other school of thought that probably needs to be paid more attention to these days, and it's coming, it's coming of age in the Adventist church as well. And we haven't typically dealt with it much, but it's the school of thought of idealism. And idealism, it looks at the prophecies from a purely sort of moralistic view. And it looks at, you know, if you're going to look at the seven churches, you're going to see what are the spiritual lessons that we can apply for us today. Um, we may not know this or that or something else, but we can learn these spiritual lessons. Now, obviously, there's, there's an element of truth in that, isn't there? There's, there are spiritual lessons we can learn from any of the prophecies all of the prophecies. But when we reduce the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel to moral lessons, we, I think we miss the main point of, of the prophecies. And this is becoming more and more popular um, with some scholars today that are suggesting that, well, we can't really be sure about, you know, A, B, or C, but what we do know is that, you know, whatever moral lesson we can study, we can learn from the trumpets or the plagues or, or whatever it may be. Um, the question I guess we have to ask ourselves is how can we know which system is correct? And the answer is that the Bible has to teach us, right? The Bible is its own interpreter. And so we look to understand that from the Bible. Now we remember that Daniel chapter 2, we have this image with the head, head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, uh, feet of iron and clay. And uh, you'll remember that as 
as Nebuchadnezzar is watching in awe at this uh, image, it's destroyed by a stone. And, of course, that stone uh, becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Now, just from that dream Nebuchadnezzar had, and I suppose it was a vision that God gave Daniel that coincided with it, um, we, we see that, we, well, just from the dream, we couldn't know very much, right? Um, we wouldn't know any more than Nebuchadnezzar would have known, even if he had remembered the dream, which he uh, fortunately didn't. Um, so, we're really dependent here on the interpretation that God gave to Daniel as, a, as an answer to the prayer. And as we compare the dream with the interpretation, we learn several important principles. First of all, we learn that Bible prophecy is often given in symbols, and the explanation of the symbols is found in the Bible itself. These are fundamental principles that sometimes we, we overlook because they're just so obvious. And so we, uh, we understand that these, this dream actually symbolized... Um, these empires, and Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise in fear to you. So we have Babylon, followed by Medo-Persia. Then we had Greece and Rome. Um, the, in the days of the mingling of the iron and clay, he says there would be a divided kingdom. And um, then uh, describing the, uh, the stone cut out without hands that destroyed the image, Daniel says, in the days of these kings, talking about the, the divided kingdom, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall last forever, right? So you have this dream, but you also have right there in the same chapter the interpretation. And um, this is very convenient for us because it is, after all, um, the very first end-time symbolic prophecy. And so we learn these principles, which I think are very, very important. And um, that animation's a little slow. Um, what we see in Daniel chapter 7 is Daniel chapter 7 uses different, prints, different symbols, but it actually covers some of the same ground. And I know some of you are familiar with this, but let's just, let's just, re, let's just uh, take some time to consider the ramifications of it. As in Daniel chapter 2, the interpretation is found in the same chapter, which is um, the, a pattern which we're beginning to see in the book of Daniel. We'll also notice that it follows a historicist stream of prophetic time. If we were to look at Daniel chapter 2, if, if we were to just ask the question, historicist, preterist, futurist, which of these schools of thought um, best understands how prophecy works? Right away from Daniel chapter 2, we would say, well, historicism says that it begins with the time of the prophet and the vision goes on down to the time of the end, right? Preterism and futurism both have difficulties with that. And uh, Daniel chapter 2 has established this. Maybe it's just a fluke. Maybe that's just an exception. But Daniel chapter 7 comes along and does the same thing from the time of the prophet down to the very time of the end. Now, this gives us an interesting pause because it makes us realize that there is, a, there is a repeating of the same territory, at least chronologically, from one prophecy to the next prophecy. Um, this could be problematic, I guess you might say. Um, well, mostly if you didn't recognize that fact. Um, it's, really a, it's really a blessing because you get to... It's sort of like having the same pic uh, picture of something from three different angles, right? You get three different types of symbols and three different uh, approaches at explaining the same thing. And I call this the repeat and enlarge principle. It's not my title, but this is a, this is a, um, 
a principle of prophetic interpretation that we have established as historicists, and that is that Bible prophecies often cover the same time period as a preceding prophecy using different symbols, but give more focus and information toward the end of time. So when you look at each of the visions, whether you're talking about Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8 and 9, Daniel chapter 10 to 12, um, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and so forth, each of these sets of visions, again, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't begin chronologically where the last vision left off. You just don't find that. And Daniel is establishing this for us. You understand? We, we have to be able to establish when the events described are going to be fulfilled, or at least what order, um, so that we can know where we are and how they have been fulfilled already. And the way that prophecy works is it begins, each vision begins with the time of the prophet and extends down to the end of time. And as they cover some of the same time periods, they are going to use different symbols, but they are going to especially enlarge or give more information towards the end of time. It's like this. I like to consider, I like to think about it sort of like a map. If you've ever traveled before the age of the smartphone and GPS, I guess I might add, if you've ever traveled, you know that you need more information about which part of your journey. Which part of your journey do you need the most information about? About your destination, right? Because you could say, well, I can get on 75 here and I can find my way to, let's say, where does it end up in um, Michigan? Uh, yeah, all the way up to northern Michigan. Um, so you could say, I, I can find my way to whatever major city it is along that route. But in order to, in order to find the, the actual destination, you're going to have to have more detailed map especially if it's not an area you're familiar with. And um, so if, if, if we look at Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we're going to notice that we have, we have the, the basic idea of the four empires, the Antichrist, the judgment, and the second coming. Daniel chapter 2 really does not talk about the, um, the judgment, does it? Nothing is specifically, well, you might say the part of God setting up his kingdom includes the judgment. Um, from Daniel chapter 7, we would probably conclude that. But um, we, we notice that in Daniel chapter 7, you do have the, the specific concept of the judgment after the, the little horn and the ten horns and so forth. And um, you have that concept. So what you're seeing here is a repeat, repetition of the, the first four or five concepts. Um, well, actually, really, the little horn's not much in Daniel chapter 2 either. So you have both the little horn and the judgment concept coming in Daniel chapter 7. Again, repeat and enlarge, the enlarge being mostly at the time of the end. If I illustrate it this way, if I, if I asked you to go here, most of you probably wouldn't be able to find your way there simply because it's such a, it's a, such a detailed map of some place without context. You don't know where that is. Um, if I were to first give you this map, you would have an idea of which continent to be going to, right? You'd be heading over to Europe. Well, the British wouldn't appreciate being called part of the Europe, but anyway. Um, if I further zoomed in, you'd have the British Isles, right? And so you know you're going to the UK. Now, this map would show you London, and so that gives you a little better idea of where you're going in, in London. And finally, if I were to show you the inset here, which is, um, you would find that this is actually the Royal Theater in London. And you, you understand what I'm saying. The most details needed at your destination. But along the way, you need to be able to have the context 
to be able to tell where that great amount of detail fits in, right? If you don't have the context of the bigger map, you don't know where to plug in those details. So it's, it's, a, it's really a brilliant thing that God has done with the giving of prophecy and, and not just giving us little, little vignettes of great detail of what's going to happen at the end of time, but instead embedding those in a big picture context of from the time of the prophet to the time of the end so we can know where in the stream those details are meant to be understood. Um, it's sort of like on a smartphone we have this pinch and zoom type feature and that's sort of the way prophecy is. It's, it's zooming in on the greater detail at the end of time because that's when God's people need the most information. And so Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 we know we have these, we have these uh, details repeating. Um, we see the greater detail that happens really at each stage of the prophecy but especially when we get down to near the time of the end we find greater details yet. So in Daniel chapter 8, um, we, we move on. We've seen this in Daniel chapter 8, and we notice a couple of things. And I'm going to just point out a couple of thoughts here as we, as we look at this. Um, we notice, for example, that in Daniel chapter 2, we had, we had very little understanding, if any, about the judgment. In Daniel chapter 7, this is very clear. The thrones are set up, books are open, the Son of Man comes in the clouds to meet the Father. Um, a very, very grand picture of the judgment beginning in heaven. In Daniel chapter 8, we have uh, even greater detail, as we might expect, of the end of this time period, and that's the, 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 the judgment and the resolution of the sin problem on earth. And um, I, I think that as we, if you have your Bibles, just look with me in Daniel chapter 7, first of all. And um, I want us to just notice something here. Sometimes we have been very myopic in our understanding of the judgment as being simply the investigative judgment. In Daniel chapter 7, um, we notice that it seems as though the, the, uh, the, the whole concept of the restoration of this earth to God's people is embedded in this judgment uh, message. Notice with me Daniel chapter 7 verse 26. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. Now this is talking about the dominion of the little horn. And so um, it, it's very interesting when we look at this and we notice verse 27 says the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Um, so the judgment that Daniel sees happening in Daniel chapter 7, which we understand to be the pre-advent judgment, is actually described by Daniel in the interpretation of the vision. It's described by Daniel as a sort of final step in the, in the, in the resolution of this controversy between God and Satan, between God's people and the deceptions of the last days. Does this make sense? So the judgment is actually, it's described as a transferring of the kingdom. So in some ways, when you read Daniel chapter 2 and the stone coming without hands, you can read that that includes the concept of the judgment. Does that make sense? Now in the same way, what we see here is that the judgment, you cannot separate the judgment from the 
the physical reuni reunion of Christ and his people as well. Because here you have, verse 26, judgment shall sit, take away his dominion. Daniel, verse 27, the dominion is going to be given to the people of the, of the Most High. And so we, we've separated sometimes, maybe somewhat arbitrarily, the second coming from the pre-advent judgment when it seems as though Daniel is almost looking at these two events as being mutually, mutually dependent upon each other. As being, as being the, 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 the final culmination of this great controversy between good and evil. And we're going to be looking at that in the next hour as we look at the relevance of 1844 today. So when we look at Daniel chapter 8, though, we begin once again with the uh, understanding of, of the vision coming from the time of the prophet down to the time of the end. Where does Daniel start? Which, which empire does Daniel start with in Daniel chapter 8? Medo-Persia, right? And why is that? Some might, you know, say, well, that's sort of an aberration. Um, well, it's simply the fact that the, the, uh, the Babylonian Empire was pretty much history. And, um, and so Daniel is, doesn't even give it, I shouldn't say Daniel, Gabriel doesn't even give it mention. It's, it's just a matter of the past. Now, we know that he begins with Medo-Persia, and this is very, very wonderful what God did, because if God did not reveal to us in Scripture here for certainty that he's beginning not with Babylon like in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we might have some real questions today. Uh, but we don't have those questions because in the interpretation, which once again is included in the same chapter, in the interpretation, we have the prophecy in, uh, uh, spelled out for us. And uh, verse 20, it says, The ram which you saw having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. The rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So as we look at these prophecies being fulfilled, we notice that they, they follow the same principles. They use the same principles, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and 9. Um, but what happens is here, we come to a, a little bit of a challenge, and this is part of the confusion, I guess, that the Christian world has had in, uh, for a number of reasons. If we, we won't take a lot of time because we just don't have, I wish we had time to sort of unpack the prophecy from Daniel 8 verses, say, 11 to 13, because I think it's just a fascinating uh, passage here, but in verse 14, it says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Um, before we, before we, uh, before we try to understand what that means, let's, we do have to spend at least a little bit of time looking at what it's answering, because it's answering a question. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 13, Notice with me. It says, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Now, here's where we, um, you know, honest Bible scholars can disagree on the understanding of what some of these terms mean, particularly when we talk about the daily as some of you may know, there's some, some Adventist scholars see the daily as being uh, referring to the high priestly ministry of Christ. Some see them as referring, it referring to the continual rebellion that which began back at the Tower of Babel, which be, was paganism. It was an overt, open rebellion against God. And uh, this ended with the baptism of Constantine and his army and so forth, 
and paganism to a large degree became baptized, you might say. It continued as an, a covert paganism under the name of Christianity. So in order to, I, I, I tend to, to follow the, the, the second interpretation, and this is one the, the, the pioneers uh, adhered to, so I'm going to just illustrate this on the slide. You'll see that's there. Um, when, we, when you talk about, when you talk about uh, Daniel chapter 8 and this prophecy, um, we, have, we have the ram two horns representing Amida Persia, the he-goat representing Greece, and the little horn of Daniel 8, quite different from the little horn of Daniel 7, follows immediately after Greece, not immediately after Rome. And so we understand that to be talking about Rome in both its phases, both pagan and papal. And the way our pioneers read this verse, without trying to get into all the details, and certainly I'm, I'm not that interested in, in debating the issue of the daily, really, but the way our pioneers read this verse was the daily portion was pagan Rome, and the abomination of desolation was papal Rome. And so when they read this verse, they, the question is, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily give, and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And one of the reasons they saw that as being the daily as being paganism, not the high priestly ministry of Christ, is that it appears in this verse that the two entities, the daily and the transgression of desolation, are teeming together to trample underfoot the sanctuary and the host. You see that? And it would not make sense to be lumping the ministration of Christ. Now, honestly, in most cases, our, 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 our net result of prophecy is fairly similar, whether we deal with the um, daily being the ministry of Christ or paganism. I think it does, add, it does raise a few more question marks when it comes to the beginning of the, um, the 1290, for example, in Daniel chapter 12, but that's another whole topic altogether. So the question is, how long is Rome, if this is the way the pioneers view it, how long is Rome in its pagan and papal phases going to last? Yes? regarding the rise of Nazism right. and the destruction of the Jewish people in Germany. And it, depending on when it started, it could have started way before the actual gunshots or fire. Sure. And I would say, well, it covered five years or sure. eight years or something. Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying that's how long the video is. So if, in this case, it's like an animation. Right. Well, how long a period of time does the animation, the fact that they only list a few things that are in the animation, doesn't matter. It's still like, right. how long did that entire animation? Okay, that, you know, that's fair. The, the, the issue is that if, the, if, if, if that question was to be answered with a starting date, it would have to also have an ending date, right? Which would, if it includes the end of papal Rome, we already saw 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says it's going to be destroyed when? at the second coming. So to answer the question, whether it's the whole vision or whether it's just these last two portions, um, it's, it's fair to, to discuss. But to answer the question is to have a, an answer for actually when the second coming would begin, uh, or would, would occur. Um, so it, it seems to me that when D Daniel 
hears this answer, when the saints are just talking, he hears this discussion. When the answer comes back unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. There's a couple of things we have to know right away. First of all, whether you use symbolic time or not, the whole vision covers more than 2,300 days. All right? And so um, what we're seeing here is um, a, a, um, an admission, I guess you might say, of the fact that, well, listen, I'm not answering when those, how long those two things will last, but I am going to tell you this much. After 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, you remember that this cleansing of the sanctuary, if you remember back in Daniel chapter 7, the, the cleansing of the sanctuary is not completely separated or segregated from the concept of the second coming. So it's a fair response that God gives here. After 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, as I understand it, and as our pioneers understood it, as they paralleled these three prophecies, they came to the conclusion that the cleansing of the sanctuary is uh, the, the same as the, well, the early um, pioneers would have said it's the same as the stone come, uh, coming without hands, the same as the judgment taking away the dominion from the Antichrist and giving to God's people, the same as giving it to uh, uh, the sanctuary being cleansed. And so, the, of course, our later pioneers, the Adventists after the disappointment, came to understand that this cleansing of the sanctuary began the work described in, Dan in Daniel chapter 7 that is known as the judgment. And so let's look real quickly. We need to sort of move quickly through some of these uh, slides to try to, try to get a, a clear understanding of what happened. When William Miller was interpreting these prophecies, of course, he was understanding this cleansing of the sanctuary to be talking about the cleansing of the earth by fire. And um, his critics, his fiercest critics, such as Campbell, Bush, Smith, and others, still agreed in general on the time portion of the prophecy. Very interesting. When we talk about 1844 today, even um, among its critics, in, in, whether it's in Christianity or in our, our own church, the critics are often criticizing the time prophecy as being sort of imaginative or, or, or whatever. The critics of Miller in his day, as we read them today in the, in the Millerite Signs of the Times and other articles, their debates that they were writing back and forth, the critics were not largely arguing over the issue of time. Um, Professor Bush, for example, said this, whoever attacks Mr. Miller on his point of time attacks him on his strongest point. His time is right, but he is mistaken in the event to occur. Bush believed that 1843 to 1844 would mark the beginning of the millennium of peace on earth, not the destruction of the world by fire at the second coming. And he believed that before this time, before 1843 or 1844, the world would need to be converted. Um, and so this is a very large difference in, in the world view. Um, others like Campbell, another very vociferous um, a very um, prolific writer that attacked Miller, um, believed that the temple in Jerusalem was literally going to be restored, that the sanctuary to be cleansed was the temple in Jerusalem. So he believed that 1843 to 1844, the Arabs would be driven out of the Holy Land, that um, the temple would be, be able to be restored, and this, was, this would be what happened. But what I'm wanting you to notice is that all of them agreed on the concept, the basic concept, of what would take place, when it would take place in 1844. Um, and all of them were also historicists. Um, the critics of Ellen White, of, Ellen White, of William Miller, 
were historicists themselves. <clears throat> I've never found any, I mean, there may have been some that commented on him, but I haven't found any writings addressing William Miller specifically or his views from anyone other than historicists. Um, the futurists and preterists didn't seem to bother. Um, they were very few in number at the time, and, um, and I suppose they may, there may be those out there. I haven't seen them. If we were to just sort of review a little bit of what was going on in the world, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but this is from The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers by Leroy Froome. We have this chart of major works, whether they're books or major papers written on the subject of end-time Bible prophecy. And each of these lines represents a lifetime of an individual. And it's safe to say that in the years between about 1800 and 1850, there were more books written on end-time Bible prophecy than had been written in the 1800 years preceding it. Um, it's very safe to say. I mean, there's just this huge explosion of interest in prophecy. And if you'll notice, if you'll notice, they were all, unless they're marked here, each dot here on the line, on their timeline, represents a book or major paper written on the study of prophecy. And the only ones, all of these are, are, um, are, fut are I'm sorry, are historicists, unless they are specifically marked as being a preterist or a futurist, and I don't think any on this page are. Um, the, the thing is, it continues, see? And so you, um, you have a few. Here you have a futurist that is there. Um, here's an Irish futurist. Um, but the vast majority of these guys are all historicists. They're not futurists. They're not preterists. Um, there's a couple of them there, but they're mostly all historicists. So in the great discussions that were going on in the day, most people were looking at prophecy through the same lens, the lens of historicism, and they're using the, the principles of historicism. Um, many besides Miller, of course, were studying and were coming to the same conclusions. Um, the Midnight Cry in June 15, 1842 was rather ecstatic as it described a book that had just been uh, discovered. Um, Davis's book, uh, must have been written about 1810. The article says that the reader might actually really fancy himself reading the production of Miller, Litch, Storrs, or Hale, but we believe that no one of the present Advent writers knew of the existence of this book until last week. So they, 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 were, they were themselves encouraged as they saw individuals from various persuasions and backgrounds coming to the same conclusions that they had come to. Joseph Wolfe in 1822 met with 20 others in London and concluded that uh, 1843 would be about the end of the world. By the way, Joseph Wolfe was the one who addressed joint um, houses of Congress, including the Vice President of the United States. They gave him 45 minutes to present his views. After an hour and a half, he was still speaking, and no one had moved and no one complained, and they gave him a unanimous appreciation for his time in sharing. Joshua Himes was a prominent Boston pastor. Uh, Charles Fitch was a uh, Congregationalist pastor in Boston, formerly the executive assistant to Charles Finney. Josiah um, Litch was a Methodist pastor. Um, Hin Hinzepeter uh, was said to be the, uh, there were about 3,000 others who were said by Miller to be preaching the message as well, as well as 700 churches, uh, ministers of the Church of England in Holland. Hinzepeter uh, was said to be the most able minister of Holland at that time. Um, he was first drawn to the study of Daniel through a dream. And um, in, 
He wrote two pamphlets in 1830 and again in 1841. Um, he first heard of the movement, however, outside of his own study and his own writing in 1842. So he had already been teaching this for 12 years previous to that. There's an also very interesting story that comes out of Russia. Um, um, it would be probably more like, uh, what part of that would be? Um, it, it's one of the stands, I think, today. But there was a, a um, Irish missionary that went to this part of the world, and um, there was a... Russian priest, Orthodox, I guess you would say, priest, who met this Irish missionary and asked him the question, when will Christ come the second time? And uh, the priest knew nothing about it. He couldn't answer that question. He didn't have any information about when Christ would come the second time. And the, 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 the Orthodox uh, expressed great surprise that some such an answer would come from a missionary and from, you know, a, a Christian believer who had come to teach them the, the doctrines of the Bible and remarked that he thought that everyone might know who had a Bible. Um, very interesting comment that was made. The Tartar priest then gave his views, stating that he thought Christ would come about 1844. Now, this was not reported in a Millerite paper. This we find in an Irish magazine telling this story in 1821. Very fascinating how all the way over in Russia, an Orthodox, and it was evidently common knowledge in that part at least, because he thought everyone who had a Bible might know when Jesus was coming. And he believed it would come in 1844. Um, very fascinating what was going on. It's truly interesting to find the various independent writers who since 19, uh, 1798 have seen what was entirely unperceived before, that the 70 weeks was a key to the 2300 days. And this is where I think we need to really sort of focus for a few minutes here and try to understand what, what um, the Midnight Cry is saying here and why the 70 weeks is so important. Basically, if we look at our Bibles again in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to discover that as the vision is being described, notice with me back in Daniel chapter 8, um, the, the vision ends with the verse 14, the 2300-day proclamation. And uh, the ex explanation or the interpretation that follows continues on down. And notice with me, verse 25, talking about the little horn through his policy. Also shall he cause craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Of course, Rome did that. But he shall be broken without hand. The vision of the evening and morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And what happened next? Okay. Daniel was sick and confused. Um, my Bible says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's vision. I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. It's very fascinating. In the other visions, when the interpretation was finished, Daniel simply recorded it, right? Um, what was there not to understand? You just had, I mean, you just had a very, maybe even more specific interpretation than in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, it didn't say Medo-Persia, Greece, etc., right? Obviously, something troubled him about this, and it appears that it was the time portion, the last part of the portion uh, of, the, of the interpretation. And um, the, the idea that Daniel fainted when Gabriel's explaining time 
um, leads us to think that this was the, maybe the trigger which gave him so much difficulty. And uh, notice with me what happens in verse 9. Now this is a number of years later, something like, I believe it's about 15 years later if I'm not mistaken. Um, Daniel is still writing or reading about um, this. He still has this question on his mind. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, which made king over the realm of Chaldeans, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So here you have, you have Daniel saying, <laughs> he's studying the prophecies of who? He's studying the prophecies of Jeremiah. And specifically, which prophecy? 70. The 70-year prophecy. Why would Daniel be so concerned about the 70-year prophecy? Well, he knows God's people are in exile. Jerusalem is sitting in ruins. And the last thing that he heard from Gabriel was that under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Could that be talking about the sanctuary in Jerusalem? Well, it shouldn't be because he knows only 70 years and it's going to be restored. But then when Daniel comes with, when Gabriel comes with the explanation to Daniel, he, he's making it very clear this is going to be for many days. We're talking about a long time prophecy here, Daniel. Daniel faints in his six certain days. So when Gabriel comes back with the explanation, let's just notice here what happens. Daniel is is earnestly praying that God would have mercy upon his people. There seems to be, there seems to be a concern on Daniel's mind, and I'm, I'm saying it seems to be because I can't say it for sure. It's not explicitly stated here. But there seems to be a concern that the 70-year prophecy is not going to be fulfilled because of the continued rebellion of Israel, because of their continual, continued wanderings, you might say. And so he's pleading with God to restore the city of Jerusalem. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, hearken and do. Defer not. You see that? Defer not. Don't put this off. You promised 70 years. And he, he repents and he pleads for Jerusalem to be restored. There's many things we could gain from a study of Daniel chapter 9, not the least of which would be the right spirit in dealing with a church that's less than perfect. Um, Daniel, one of the things I respect the most about Daniel is he's not praying this prayer in the third person. It's not that they, the rest of God's church, is having problems. He's, he's including, we have sinned. Um, oh, if, if, if we had more with Daniel's spirit and attitude, I think we would see a more genuine revival and reformation. Instead, I think many of us who want a revival and reformation, we tend to think that the other people need the revival and reformation. And um, it will only happen when it begins with us. So he's praying, and he says in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. What's the holy mountain of my God? It's Jerusalem, right? It's the temple. That's what he's praying about, very clearly. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, who had seen the vision at the beginning, 
being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation, informed me and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to you uh, to show you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the what? It says, consider the vision. And what you'll notice, without getting into great detail, the word vision describing, in the, uh, when, when he says, consider the vision, he has to be referring to some vision, right? I mean, people don't, an angel's not just going to say that for nothing. What vision could he be referring to? The previous vision. And he uses the same word there, talking about the vision as is used in the previous chapter. And so we have this concept of we're going back to look again at what you didn't understand from Daniel chapter 8. Okay? That's very important. And how does he begin by explaining? Seventy weeks. The first, the first words out of his mouth, I mean, at least in the English translation, um, the first topic that he's going to discuss is time. That's where he left off, isn't it? So he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and so forth. So if we look at the links between Daniel 8 and 9, and this is absolutely imperative. This is how William Miller came to an understanding of 1843-1844. You cannot come to an understanding of the 2300 days ending in 1843 and 1844 without Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 being seen as one package. Okay? And so, um, this, is, this is where Adventism today differs from the rest of the Christian world largely. Um, first of all, we're the last major denomination remaining to be historicist. Um, and even that's under attack um, among are among some thought leaders and, and theologians today. But in William Miller's day, you have to understand, all of the other interpreters that they were debating and discussing with, they, they took for granted the concept that Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 went together as a package. That's why they had the same concept of time. And they said time was William Miller's strongest point. Daniel chapter 8, um, we see Daniel faints, uh, Gable begins with an explanation of time in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel studying the Jeremiah's prophecy, as we mentioned. Um, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is told to consider the vision, referring back to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 9 gives a, a beginning event, whereas Daniel chapter 8 only gave an, uh, an event that would mark the end of the prophecy. And the 70 weeks, Daniel says, or Daniel hears, are cut off. Uh, chafak, the word in, 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 the, in the Hebrew or Aramaic, it's, it literally means to be cut off. Um, King James says determined, um, apportioned. Um, time can only be cut off of what? A longer portion of time. So all of this points us back to Daniel chapter 8 and the 2300-day prophecy. Now when we come now to Daniel chapter 9 and we begin to study these prophecies, this is what is very fascinating, I think. Um, if we were to look at an illustration of Daniel chapter 8 and the 2300-day prophecy, we would notice we would notice that, that the 2300-day prophecy takes its, its starting point from the, the starting point of the 70-week prophecy, right? So know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, and we could spend a whole lecture just talking about Artaxerxes' decree and the chronology of Ezra chapter 7 and, and so forth, but um, from the beginning of the decree, which we believe took place in... Um, in the fall of, 18, of 457, it's going to be 70 weeks. And 69 weeks, um, after 69 weeks, the Messiah is going to be 
cut off or um, in the midst of the 70th week, the Messiah would be cut off and so forth. Um, but what we find is this. What we find is if, in fact, the 70-week prophecy is cut off of the 2300-day prophecy, what God has done is something that he did not do with any other time prophecy. He gave us a down payment, you might say, to help us be certain that we have the correct principles of interpretation and we have the correct events, historical events, that we're matching those predictions with. Let me say it this way. If I were to, to want to know for sure that I have the right starting date for the 70 weeks, all I have to do is look at history and see how it was fulfilled, right? So if we question 457, all we have to do is say, well, does it match historically what we understood, understand happened? 483 years after 457 B.C. brings us down to the year 27 A.D. That's until Messiah the Prince. What does Messiah mean? The Anointed One. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the Gospels are very specific about when Jesus was baptized or when He became anointed by the Holy Ghost and uh, began His work of ministry. And, uh, you know, sometimes we read these things and we just think that this is happenstance and just a bunch of trivia, but God inspired Bible writers to include certain things in the text for a reason. And when we look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene, you might say, why in the world does that mean anything for us today? Well, it's very simple. If you were to coincide historically the Roman records of all those, what, five or six different rulers of provincial Rome, you would have to, you would have to say this is... I mean, first of all, you have the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. That gives you a pretty good idea. But you can, you can definitely be confident what year Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized in. Why is that important? Well, because it solidifies our understanding of the 70-week prophecy. You see? It gives us confidence that Jesus actually did come in, in uh the, in, in 27 AD, he was actually cut off in the midst of the week, and the gospel went to the Gentiles at the end of that week in 34 AD, as St Stephen is stoned, and it's become clear that the 70 weeks, or the 490 years, did not solve the rebellion problem of Israel. They had 70 weeks to make an end of their transgressions, to, to become, if you might say, the, the people that God wanted them to be. It doesn't mean they were going to be perfect, but they were going to be fulfilling the mission to take the message of the Savior to the world. And if they weren't going to do it, God was not going to last, I mean, God is not going to wait another 490 years for the Israelites or the Jews to tell the world about the Messiah they killed, you know? When, when their rebellion was complete, when the 490 years were finished, God said, all right, if you won't do it, I'll graft in those wild branches and the Gentiles will be the messengers. There'll now be a church that is made up not of those who are circumcised physically, but those who are circumcised in the heart. And those who are Christ's are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promises. And they now have the responsibility, the Christian church now have the responsibility of taking the truth to the world that the Jewish nation would have had had they, had they repented during those 490 years. Now this is the point. This is where the, it's really the rub of this whole presentation. 
if you come with a historicist understanding of Daniel chapter 9. Okay? Every, almost everyone agrees that Daniel chapter 9 is talking about the Messiah, the Prince, and so forth, up to 27 AD. Okay? Even the futurists say this was a day for your principle, this was Jesus, he came in 27 AD, etc., etc. The historicist principle simply says you can't have a gap <laughs> between the 69th and the 70th week, okay? That wouldn't make sense. And if you interpret Daniel 8 and 9 together, like a futurist doesn't do, how could you? If you thought there was going to be, I mean, imagine a, imagine a diagram showing the 69 weeks and then the rest of the 2300 days and the 70th week after the 2300 days were over. Can you imagine illustrating that in a diagram? It just wouldn't work. You can't, that concept is a, it just doesn't compute. And so, if you have Daniel 8 and 9 together, and if you have the prevailing conception of Daniel 9, the first 69 weeks, even from non-Adventist futurists or historicists, if you have those two concepts together, you have to have 69 weeks, 70 weeks ending in 34 AD, the remaining 1810 years coming after, 18, uh, after 34 AD and ending when? In 1844. So what God did is He said, and, and He did not do this for any other time prophecy. Not the 1260, not the 1290, not the 1335, not the 70 years. I mean, over and over, we, we could look at different time prophecies. This is the only time prophecy where God says, okay, you want to be really sure about it? I'll give you 490 years of fulfillment so you know you have the right date and you have the right principles of interpretation. I'll give you the advantage in, 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 in the year 1830 or in the year 2013. I'll give you the advantage of being able to look back and see 490 years of prophecy fulfilled as it was given. You'll know that you have the right start date. Because you'll be able to see, sure enough, the first 49 years, the first week of those 70 weeks, sure enough, the, the, uh, the temple was, uh, uh, the first, I guess, the first seven weeks, the temple was restored in Jerusalem. The city was restored. The first 69 weeks, sure enough, here's Messiah the Prince. The middle of the week, Messiah is cut off. The end of the week, Acts chapter 8, general persecution after the, after the stoning of Stephen, and the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And those who were um, in Jerusalem were scattered abroad, and they went everywhere preaching the word. And those weren't the disciples. The elders were still, the, the, the 12 apostles were still in Jerusalem. Everyone else was missionaries because the Christian church was now taking the gospel to the rest of the world. And so my argument is, and this is, this is um, I think, why 1844 was Miller's strongest point was because you have a time prophecy with, with just a couple of principles, you can be very, very sure you have the right interpretation of it. Does that make sense? It's sort of like we have what we call escrow accounts, right? If you want to buy a house to convince a person that you have, you're serious about it and they won't sell it to someone else, you put some money in escrow. I'm not an expert on real estate, but I sort of understand the concept. Um, sort of a third party holds the account and, or the funds until the transaction is complete and if something happens either way, both sides are protected by this you know, third party being involved. And God has essentially put, out of the 2300 day prophecy, God gave us a down payment or put an escrow 490 of those years. And he said, 
This is going to be how you know for sure that the 2300-day prophecy ends in 1844. It's because you've got all of this evidence to see it being fulfilled prior to the uh, fulfillment at the end of it. You have all of this evidence for 490 years confirming you have the right date and you have the right principles of interpretation. Now this is especially important maybe for this prophecy because the termination of it would not be something that would happen visibly on earth. It would happen invisible to our human eyes in the sanctuary in heaven, right? And yet this would be an invisible prophetic event, event being fulfilled would be the message the Christian world needed to hear before Jesus could come again. So if it's going to be that important of a message, if it's going to be that important for God's people to be able to preach it and to share it and to, to be able to live it, then God wanted to make sure that it was very certain and very sure. So even though the event wasn't visible in heaven, we could be certain that it really happened. We could be certain that our understanding of prophecy was actually correct. And um, in our next presentation, we're going to be looking at what that event was in heaven and why it's relevant for us today. So let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us the word of prophecy. As we've lo briefly looked at principles today, as we've, as we've considered um, this seminal prophecy um, that we, we see to be important in these last days, we thank you for making it so certain and so sure. We thank you that we can indeed look uh, uh, and study a more sure word of prophecy, not of a private interpretation, not of something that we have to be ambivalent about or not something that's ambiguous, but something that's very clear and something that's very certain. Thank you for giving us 490 years of fulfillment to be able to confirm what we, what we would otherwise maybe have more doubts about, um, whether we have the right starting date, whether we have the right principles. Thank you for, for giving us this prophecy in such a way that we can confirm it in history. We can confirm it from what we already know to be true and the fulfillment we can already see. Help us, I pray, as we look at the times we live in today, that we might still be people of the book and that we might still be people who are living this most holy place message because you are coming soon. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.